you again to teach the word. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, We sort of worked through the first half of Paul's instruction to Timothy about the sufficiency of Scripture. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, turn there with me. Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. So what we did last week was we examined these four things that Paul tells us Scripture is good for, what it does for us. We saw that it teaches us the things that we need to know. Scripture contains everything necessary to not only have a true faith in the gospel of Christ, but to have a living and active faith in the gospel of Christ. This is what we're going to look at today. I want to begin with sort of going to change gears from where we were last week. Last week we talked about doctrinal things, how scripture tells us what we need to believe, how scripture corrects doctrinal errors that enter into our minds, enter into our assembly. This week we're going to change gears and we're going to talk about good works and the law of God. The reason we're going to do that is because that's the other half of what we see here in 2 Timothy 3.16. There is reproof, there is rebuke, there is training in righteousness. So we're going to talk about the law of God. When we approach the law of God, there are two equal and opposite errors that I have seen faithful Christians fall into concerning God's law and God's instruction. And both of them come out of a some kind of fear of the law of God. So my exhortation to you this morning is that we do not have to fear the law of God. We do not have to fear God's instruction. And there are these two equal and opposite errors, and there are two ways that people fear the law. And the first is that sometimes Christians fear the judgment of the law. We do not have to fear the judgment that the law brings, Because those who are in Christ are no longer subject to its judgments. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I've often joked that I could not get through a sermon without referencing Romans chapter 3 at least once, and I think I managed to do it last week. So it is only fitting that I arrive here early this week. Paul writes to the Roman church, starting in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is, in my opinion, the most important word in the New Testament. 
It's not to say that you know, some parts of Scripture are more important than others. But it is, to me, a word of significance. Propitiation means the satisfaction of wrath. Paul tells us here that Christ was put forward to satisfy the wrath of God. And he did so for his people. Because Paul tells us, just a few verses before this, starting in verse 10, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. All people, apart from Christ, are subject to the law and the judgment that it brings, because all people have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But for those who are in Christ, Christ has made satisfaction for God's wrath. Christ has undergone the judgment of the law. So we do not need to fear the law's judgment. The author of Hebrews, probably Paul, paints us a helpful picture of the law and grace. He gives us a look into the minds of the Israelites as they received the law from Sinai. Hebrews 12, verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to immeasurable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We do not have to fear the law because Christ has taken the judgment that it brings. Now, there is another type of fear of the law that I've seen faithful Christians engage in. Remember, this first error is to fear the judgment of the law. And this other fear of the law. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. This this fear of the law that, that we see here in, in Hebrews. Um, we, we do not have to fear the law in that we do not have to look to the law for the assurance of our faith. We do not have to look inwardly at our lives, examine our good works in order to have confidence in our salvation. Turn with me to John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is one of my favorite episodes that we see in the Gospels because it's, it really, it does a good job of really putting on display the, uh, the nonsense that the natural man will engage in. See, Jesus uh, performs this miracle, right, in the beginning of John 6. He feeds 5,000 people, 
with one lunch. He feeds all of them, and then he leaves. And the next day, the, these people, they follow him, and then they get to him, and he's talking to them again, and they're like, what sign do you bring? And Jesus is like, you don't know me. As though he had not just fed 5,000 people the day before. Anyway, in John 6, 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here Christ gives the promise to all who believe in him, the promise to all who have faith in him, the promise to all of the elect that he should lose none that the Father has given to him. We find our assurance, the confidence of our faith in the promises of Christ. These promises are testified to throughout Scripture. Paul writes in Romans 8, No, in All these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And that includes you. We need not fear the law because we are not subject to its judgment, and we need not look to the law to find the confidence of our faith. In the same way that we are saved, through the work of Christ on the cross and making propitiation for the sins of his people, in the same way that we are saved, we can have the assurance of faith. Our assurance is found in the faithfulness of Christ, not in our own faithfulness. Now, this other, I'm going to do that at least one more time. This other type of fear that I've seen people have for the law. There are those who fear the law and the judgment that it brings. And then there are those who sort of take it the exact opposite, and they fear the law for everything that it brings. I have heard it said that the law has only one purpose. I have read of professing Christians who testify that the only purpose of the law is to bring judgment. They call it the letter that kills. It does nothing for you except condemns you. This is not the case. And it's really easy to explain why it's not the case using only scripture. There's a certain appreciation, a certain love that we should have for the word of God, right? After all, Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. If we turn to Psalms, we see a beautiful picture of 
a man who is in love with his Father in heaven, and a man who is in love with the words of the Lord. Psalm 119, the longest psalm, the longest chapter in our Bible in terms of verse count, is all about having love for God's law. I'm going to re- read a few, few excerpts here, and then there's one we're going to focus on. Uh, starting in verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth, and the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Flip over a page, probably, to verse 97. Oh, How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Verse 129, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light, it imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. Now, this is what I want to focus on here, starting in verse 146. I call to you. Save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. So after hundreds and hundreds of words, extolling the law of the Lord, praising God for his rules and his teachings and his precepts, We see a faith in the Lord that never wavers. What I mean by this is that at no point do we see that the psalmist credits himself. At no point does the psalmist look to his own following of the law for his salvation.
Rather, we see a sinful man crying out to God to save him. And because of that, he loves the law of the Lord. This other fear of the law is the fear of legalism. There are people who are so afraid of getting the gospel wrong, right? Because the gospel is not a gospel of works, right? Salvation is not of works. Salvation is of faith in Christ. And yet people are so afraid that if they mention the law, if they meditate on the law, that they will be unknowingly engaging in the heresy of legalism. But what we see here from the psalmist is a faith in God, a faith in the promise of the Messiah. And from that we see a love, a delight in the law of the Lord. So church, you do not have to fear God's law. You do not have to fear it and that you are not subject to its judgment and you do not have to fear it in that it is good to love the law of God. So now we're going to get back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going we're to talk about works and correction and rebuke. So, when you read scripture, it actually seems pretty evenly split between this positive and negative instruction. But I'm going to spend more time, and I spent more time last week, talking about this negative instruction. And the reason for that is because uh, there are more details that go into the careful execution of negative instruction. We have to be more careful when we engage in correction. Many of Paul's letters, particularly 1 and 2 Corinthians, are concerned with this sort of practical instruction. Paul has a lot to say about what Corinth needs to start doing and what they need to stop doing. Because there was a lot of stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. There was a lot of stuff they weren't doing that they were supposed to be doing. And so we see in Corinthians several of these negative, positive sequences in instruction. Paul addresses an error, and then he says how they ought to live after they quit doing the thing, right? They're all, these negative practical instructions are always accompanied by positive practical instruction. So I told you last week that we would sort of use the duties of the elder as sort of a uh, working example for examining these types of instruction. And so when we talk about positive practical instruction, when we talk about training in righteousness, the matter of the qualification of the elder is called into question. Half of the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are concerned with how an elder lives his life. So the most powerful testimony of positive practical instruction comes from the example of the qualified elder, reinforced by his teaching of the word on these things. If an elder is qualified on these positive practical issues, then he's qualified to teach on them. And it's the combination of these testimonies that are effective for the training of the local assembly. So in Titus 1, Paul instructs Titus to appoint 
elders in every town who are qualified according to his instructions. In Titus 1, Paul writes, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an, ins- for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Titus's job was to find men who were qualified to lead the churches. So what do you do if no men are found to be qualified? Paul tells us in Titus 2. Um, let's see, in Titus 2, 1, Paul instructs Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he goes on to tell us precisely what should be taught and the things that we see Paul instructing Titus to do are basically the qualifications for the elders. So there's this, this interesting observation we can make about the qualifications for elders, and that is all of them are commanded of everyone anyway. Right? Every single one of you is commanded to be qualified to be an elder of the church, sort of. Um, women, you are not commanded to be a husband. Sorry. You get a pass on that one. But men, you are you're commanded to be qualified to be an elder. Except possibly that uh, the qualification to be able to teach may or may not be something commanded of everyone. You should be able to proclaim the gospel. You should be able to speak of your salvation, the testimony of your faith in Christ and his work on the cross to save his people. So what position do good works occupy in the faith? We've already seen that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ so that no man may boast. But Paul asks the Romans, shall we sin that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means. Paul gives instruction to Titus on precisely the role good works play in our faith. Let's see. I didn't write the verse number, but I, I wrote down the whole quote. Let's see. Oh, here it is. It's in Titus 3. Yep, Titus 3, starting in verse 4. Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in order to understand the relationship between faith and works, we first have to understand the faith part. We have to understand the gospel, and then it is within that context that we will examine good works. So Paul says, but when... We used to be wicked. The people of God used to be wicked, born into sin, inheriting the sin of our father Adam. We were dead. We hated God. As Paul said in Romans 3, none is good, no, not one. We were as far from God as we could ever be. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Paul says that our Savior appeared with goodness and loving kindness. 
And so, I don't want you to make a mistake here. When Paul speaks of the appearance of the goodness and the loving kindness of our Savior, he is not talking about the incarnation of Christ. I have read commentators who insisted that Paul was just talking about the incarnation here. Right In John 1, we see the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's describing here the particular mechanism of calling us out of darkness. The particular way in which Christ calls his people to himself. We were guilty sinners, but now we are not because of this appearing of the goodness and the loving kindness of Christ. This appearing of our Savior is none other than the revelation of the gospel of Christ to our hearts in the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. This testimony of the gospel is precisely this appearing of the goodness and loving kindness of Christ. So we were dead in our sins. Our hearts were dark. And then goodness and loving kindness appeared to us in the gospel. So there's something I want you to understand about God's goodness. There's a distinction I'm going to make here. This goodness of God is distinct from the righteousness of God. Goodness and loving kindness are describing the manner of the appearing of our Savior in the gospel. Righteousness speaks of duty and requirements. Goodness and loving kindness speak of something more, something beyond what is required. We see God's righteousness displayed in judgment. So God is righteous when he condemns the sinner. That is what is required of God. Do you know that God is required to do things? There are things that God has to do because he has said he would do them. And he cannot go back on his promises. And so God must judge the wicked. He has promised to do so. He is required to do so. Because he is required to do so, some judgment must be poured out on the sins of his people. So he does that on Christ. Christ's work on the cross is necessary for redemption because God is righteous. God cannot permit the guilty into his presence, and so in order to permit his people to have eternal communion and unity with him, his righteousness requires that his justice be satisfied. And it is on the cross that Christ pays the penalty for the sin of his people and his people alone. This is the gospel that has appeared. This is the goodness and the loving kindness that has appeared. God has no duty to save anyone. Because God will never find in us anything that he is required to love. God loves righteousness because he is righteousness and he is required to love righteousness because he loves himself above all others. And so God has no duty to save us because he's never going to find that righteousness in us. But instead he loves us because he is good and merciful. And gracious. God's righteousness does not compel him to love us. His goodness and mercy do. And by his goodness and mercy, he has freely chosen to love us, his people, those least deserving of it. And so it is at this time, this appearing of the gospel, this very moment that the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see this gospel and to believe it, that Paul say, says that he saved us. 
Paul identifies an explicit moment in time where we went from being in a state of being guilty before God to being no longer guilty before God, saved. And everything that follows here in verses 5 through 7 of Titus 3 is a part of this moment. Paul goes on to reinforce what I already told you. I said, God will never find in us anything which he ought to love, but he loves us because he is good and merciful. Paul says the same thing here. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Nothing in you pleased God to save you. Only God was pleased in himself compelled by the liberty of his own mercy and love to save you. Now this next bit is interesting, and there's something easy to miss here in Titus. But it's fundamentally important to our understanding of the gospel. If you just read through this passage once or twice without dwelling on Paul's arguments, you could miss this. So previously, when Paul said that the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared to us, Paul's not only telling us when Christ saved us, but he's also telling us how. There's more to that word, appeared. Our Savior has appeared in the sense that light has been shown upon him. That's the literal meaning of the Greek word for appeared. Light shone upon him. When Christ appeared to us, it was because we were in darkness and now we are in light. We were blind and now we can see. And as Paul continues here in Titus 3, he's not saying, and then. He's not telling us this happened and then this happened and then this happened next. Rather, Paul is giving further details into the manner of our salvation, this, the method of our redemption. So back in Titus 3, he writes, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. This regeneration is the cause of our faith. This washing by the Holy Spirit is where our faith comes from. It is the very thing that enables us and compels us to believe the gospel of Christ. This revelation of the gospel is the means by which the Holy Spirit performs the work of regeneration and renewal. Paul continues in verse 6, The Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I'm reminded of Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean, every spiritual blessing? Those whom Christ died for have been blessed in every spiritual way. Their sins have been forgiven. God's wrath is satisfied against them. Christ's righteousness is their own. And they have been declared holy in Christ. And you cannot receive God's grace in part. People like to get clever with their systematic theologies and categorize grace into all these different facets and they often fall into the trap of thinking that you can receive some measure of God's grace and not all of it we can make the mistake of dividing God's grace so that we have received regenerating grace the grace for faith and not the grace that leads to maturity, that leads to knowledge. 
Paul is clear that this cannot be. God's grace is given fully and completely in Christ. And this is what it means that the Holy Spirit has been poured out richly in Christ. So in verse 4, we said, but when, and then Paul identifies a particular point in time when he was saved, the moment he was regenerated by the Spirit through the revelation of the gospel of Christ. And I make the claim that everything that follows in verses 5, 6, and 7 of Titus 3 is a part of this moment, is a part of this salvation. And Paul is making exposition on regeneration. And then he says in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Here Paul makes an explicit statement of justification by faith at the time of faith. And all these things work together so that we may be heirs together with Christ according to the hope of eternal life. So, of good works. Paul continues in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So here Paul gets really practical. He's laid a theological foundation for us in a detailed explanation of God's grace, faith, regeneration, But now he shifts to very practical matters, giving us a, so what? What are we going to do about this faith, this salvation? Paul says, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are profitable for the people. So here Paul gives a very explicit and practical reason why we, the church, should devote ourselves to good works. Why? It's profitable. It's good for you. It's good and beneficial for you to devote yourselves to good works. This is consistent with what we know about sin, right? We know that sin ultimately has eternal consequences, that God's judgment will be poured out against all unrighteousness. We also know that sin has consequences here on earth. You pay for your sins today, don't you? Sin damages our relationships. Sin can harm you physically. God has erected the government to exact temporary justice against sin. And so naturally, good works work the other way. So we, the church, grow closer in our intimacy with one another by serving each other, by loving each other. We grow closer to Christ. Good works are a good thing. If they weren't, they wouldn't be called good. It's good for me to exhort you to love one another. It's good for me to encourage you to serve one another. And it is good for me to exhort you unto killing the sin that is in your life. These are good things. As long as we understand them in the context of the gospel of grace. Do not need to be afraid of talking about good works. We do not need to be afraid of asking ourselves, how can I be more obedient to Scripture? These are good things. And Paul tells us exactly how to answer these questions. Paul tells us exactly how the teacher ought to encourage you 
to engage in good works. Paul gives us the formula for teaching works to the church, and it's not ambiguous. It's quite clear, I think. When Paul says, this saying is trustworthy, in the beginning of verse 8, what's he talking about? He's talking about the description of the gospel that he just gave. This saying, this gospel is trustworthy. He's talking about how we were once lost in darkness. He's talking about how God in his goodness and mercy chose to love those he would call his people, the elect. He's talking about our Savior who has appeared to us through the revelation of the gospel to save us, to justify us, to sanctify us. He's talking about the spirit of the Lord and the manifold graces he bestows upon us through his spirit. This is the saying that is trustworthy. And here's how you teach good works. You insist on these things. You insist on this gospel. You insist on preaching the fullness of this pure and simple gospel of grace so that God's people may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This doesn't mean that I never tell you not to do something or I never tell you that you should be doing something. But it means that you and I engage with each other in examining these issues of works, these issues of obedience in the context of the gospel of grace. We understand that both of us are guilty of all of the sins. We've all done all of the things. And it is in the context of the gospel that we can learn obedience. We can learn to love the law of God. We can learn that we do not have to fear the law. Speaking of correction, speaking of telling you when you're wrong, we arrive at the responsibility of the eldership that is most often abused or neglected in churches that may even handle the rest of what I've told you with great care. Jesus and the apostles have taken great care to clearly and precisely give instruction on how to handle correction. For reasons that are lost to me, most assemblies fall into one of two errors concerning correction. The first error a church can fall into concerning rebuke is to be graceless and abrupt. To have no charity and no patience. The second error is to simply permit the sin to continue. To not care to neglect correction. So remember here, we're talking about negative practical instruction. Don't do this thing. And within Scripture, we find two types of instruction that sort of fall under this heading. We find general instructions on things that ought not be done. And we find personal instruction on how the elders ought go about correcting errors of sinful behavior within the body. So again, in Titus, considering the negative behaviors given in the qualifications of elders, there are several things that Paul says disqualify an elder. An, an elder. Paul teaches against these things. As we emphasized previously, the qualified elder may teach against these things. But the disqualified elder is a hypocrite. We can look to Paul's letters to Corinth. For examples of this negative practical instruction, there's all these issues of sin 
within the Corinthian church, and Paul rebukes them over the course of his two letters. And so as this negative, or as we see in Corinthians that when we correct, when we instruct on things you ought not to do, we always see that there is this instruction to teach what you ought to do. And most importantly, when you give correction, it's always within the context of the gospel of grace. Paul further gives guidelines to the elders for executing church discipline. We see in Matthew 18, the instructions of Christ on how you handle matters of rebuke within the church. Paul tells Timothy, remember Timothy is a young guy, right? Much younger than me. And he is the elder one of the elders of his church. And so Paul instructs Timothy that while you have authority over the men of your church as their elder, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That said, I can identify with Timothy as a young elder. I see that I've been put into a position as someone young giving instruction. And so his exhortation to Timothy is not to focus on rebuke, not to focus on correction, but on exhortation. Paul's instructions to Timothy also have uh, instructions for rebuking an elder specifically. And he basically says, don't do it unless you're really sure. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. We find this to be a modification of the Matthew 18 model. right? The way we handle church discipline in general, is found in Matthew 18, but there are a couple places in Scripture where we see instruction that sort of deviates from this general model in a way. Right In 1 Corinthians 5, you had a man who was engaged in an illicit relationship with his own mother, and the church was just tolerating it, and Paul's instruction was, stop it. Get rid of him. We see here in um, 1 Timothy 5, this instruction on how to bring a charge against an elder. It's a little bit different from this general instruction found in Matthew 18. Turn there, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's pretty straightforward, right? It seems that the instructions there are pretty clear. There's something that people often misunderstand about Matthew 18, and it's this, really two things. First of all, Matthew 18, church discipline is not punitive, right? It's not punishment. You're not in trouble. Right? The point is grace. The point is we want to see you restored 
to fellowship with the assembly. What Christ does here is he establishes church discipline as a means of grace for his people who fall into sin. When one of his sheep falls into sin, church discipline is the way Christ calls them back. And the other thing we misunderstand is the severity of the last statement there. When he refuses to listen to the church, he's removed from the fellowship of the church. And it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews using Jewish idioms, using Jewish examples to help them understand what he wants them to do. So, when Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, we need to understand that as a Jew would understand what it means to be a Gentile and a tax collector. The Jews had nothing to do with the Gentiles and tax collectors. It's not that they quit hanging out with them. The only thing that they had to do with Gentiles and tax collectors would be in the context of a reconciliation. You see the tax collector who's stealing your money out on the street, you're not going to talk to him. He shows up at your house for dinner. You're not going to invite him in. But if he comes back to repent, you invite him in. Church discipline is about reconciliation. So there's a, a general exhortation found after where we've been in 2 Timothy. Paul gives this general exhortation for rebuke. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions. and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we as a church should be vigilant. We should study scripture. We should learn together both doctrine and practice what to believe, should know who God is. And we should know what to do about it. And ultimately, the purpose of good works 
here on earth is for your joy, for your love for one another. That's why we have been called to serve Christ, so that our joy may be complete in him. And that we, the church, may be one, intimate, united, with love for one another. Do not fear the law, but love the law because Christ has loved you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and everything that is in it. God, I thank you for your people, my brothers and sisters that you have given me to love and to serve. God, I pray that by your spirit we would learn and grow in our love for you and in our love for one another. continue to teach us and instruct us on how to do that as we leave from here. God, we thank you for the work of your son that you saw fit to satisfy your wrath against us on him. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.